Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 27 Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice Comic-Con Trailer I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your DCCU apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel and those eagerly anticipating the DCCU. This episode, we break down and analyze the Batman v Superman Comic-Con trailer. This podcast dives deep into the DCCU to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate the films that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love the DCCU and who love to chew their food. Incredible. I'm awestruck and amazed. My expectations exceeded. I am ridiculously happy. A bunch of boring business reasons why my reactions are delayed, though I did get to see the Daily Planet, but let's ignore those and just get right into it. I'm going to start with an overview, and then we'll go back over it with a complete breakdown. Line by line, shot by shot. But first, my reactions went something like this. Going with the first line, Senator Finch says, Today is a day for truth. The world needs to know what happened and to know what he stands for. Well, if you're steeped in Superman canon, hearing the word truth and being asked what does Superman stand for should trigger truth, justice, and the American way. And under that lens, you can see how Snyder introduces these themes and core American values elegantly into the first 50 seconds. So truth is invoked by that opening line and by the demonstrators exercising their First Amendment freedom of assembly, association, and free speech, all meant to promise promulgate and promote the truth by the free press covering the event. Justice gets invoked by the hearing, an opportunity to be heard and to be evaluated publicly and fairly, the rule of law and government and not mob rule, a sense of justice. So where's the American way? Well, aside from those tenets already implied upon which this nation was built, it's arguable that nothing has shaped American foreign and domestic policy our way more than 9-11 in the public consciousness. When asked, what is the American way? It isn't unreasonable to look at the past 15 years and say 9-11. It has shaped our approach to war, transportation, immigration, and surveillance. And those impacts all resonate with the Superman mythos. An immigrant who fights, lies, spies with x-ray eyes and all hearing ears. So the American way gets triggered by unmistakable imagery. The collapsing building and the cloud of debris rushing through the canyon of city streets. 50 seconds into the trailer and my heart is fluttering. I'm completely dorking out. The last time I talked about the teaser, I said I wasn't as moved as with the Star Wars second trailer, but this time I was definitely moved. I feel like at least 
least in this moment, that I get Zack Snyder's genius, I get this movie, and I don't need to see anything more, but oh, do we get so much more. The overall rhythm then goes from Superman to Batman to Superman, then to Lex Luthor, and back to the larger DCCU or DCEU with Robin, Wonder Woman, the Waynes, LexCorp, Kryptonite, hints of their combat, and then Lex heralding the revolution. And then finally, our two titans facing one another in the same shot. The music uses choir and strings to convey just how epic this is going to be. So much of the plot is still obscured, but we get to see the central players and hints of their motivation. We get to see some of the action and the visual effects, and we're left with a lot of questions and intriguing visuals to let us know that there are still some surprises in store. I think I'm babbling. I think I need a more disciplined approach to this analysis, so let's start to go line by line, shot by shot as best we can. The trailer is so smart because it layers and juxtaposes the lines and the images so that you can discuss them separately and together, so this won't be a perfectly linear analysis, but I'll do my best to try to keep it logical. So we open with Academy Award winner Holly Hunter as Senator Finch. That detail comes from a recent THR photo shoot. The name Senator Finch could be a fairly obscure name drop for a character that was in the Batman animated series, briefly in the episode entitled Be a Clown, but more likely it's a mere coincidence. Senator Finch is opening the hearing and dramatically intending to get at the truth. That gives us context for Superman descending upon the Senate side of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. Demonstrators are outside on a beautiful autumn day with their placards, which conveniently all face the camera. That's not impossible as many placards are double-sided and the demonstrators know that it's more important that their signs face the camera than the Capitol building. As Superman descends onto the base of the steps, we see the cameras behind the crowd, covering the event. The demonstrators are carrying green and orange tell us the truth about alien signs, a gray's head on a stick with the Superman symbol on its forehead, a sign that says, when invasion becomes reality, revolt becomes duty, two copies of a Superman symbol captioned by saving lives, red and blue signs that say, you can't be Christian and alien, a sign that says Superman equals illegal alien, aliens are un-American, this is our world, not yours, aliens doom nations, a swastika inside a red pentagram, God hates aliens, an obvious Westboro reference, marry me Superman, <laughs> uh, share the planet, a model drone painted red and blue, stop Superman now, we are safer with Superman, Superman saves, and on the far left are images of children, perhaps victims of the Black Zero event. In the reverse shot, we can see Lois in the background among the demonstrators behind the police barricade and police presence. So a couple of things to note about the demonstrators. They represent a mix of positions and attitudes, gratitude and infatuation, biases and bigotry, wounds and hurts, real and imagined. As divisive as people were about the film in the real world, imagine how much more people might be divided on the real thing within the world of the DCCU. Another thing to note is that this is a moderate amount of demonstrators. This is a fringe issue and a fringe hearing of extreme public curiosity, but limited public interest. In other words, the average person's life doesn't revolve around this hearing. This isn't like a Vietnam-era demonstration.
demonstration. The only people here are those with comparatively extreme interests in the matter. Most are going to be content to read or watch the news on this later. Superman's brow is furrowed, with a pensive look on his face, and not many things can make a man who can fly look up. But here, the U.S. government looms large before him. All eyes are on Superman as he starts to walk into the hearing. This is a Senate subcommittee hearing and not a court, but a little more on that later. We see the press kneeling in front of the committee, taking extremely close-up, high-resolution photos of Superman. So his image is known around the world. We see that Senator Finch chairs the committee, and we also see Scoot McNary on the right. Also on our right is real-world Senator Patrick Leahy from Vermont, who has a penchant for popping up in Batman movies, making his cameo appearance here. I can't tell you how much my heart swelled to see Superman walk to the podium. Here's the thing. Many want to focus on the idea that Superman is being taken to task or held accountable, but consider for a moment what this means. If the Senate subpoenas Superman, how are they going to enforce that. Superman showing up is his acknowledgement of their authority, his respect for them as an American, and his desire to be a good citizen and an asset to his nation. He shows up with solemnity and reverence for America's representatives, even if it's easy to be glib, obstinate, or go for that mic drop, as you might have seen in other Senate hearings in other movies. As an alter ego or persona, he doesn't have to show up, but he put these gears into motion when he asked General Swanwick to talk to Washington, and he's come now that he's been invited. The groundwork for this moment was laid in Man of Steel, deliberately and intentionally. This isn't a response to audience reaction, but where the story was inevitably going. And as much as some want to see this hearing as about blame, consider the underlying assumption of trust being shown Superman. There are no soldiers, no National Guard that we can see. A being that can be a living weapon, who could bring down the entire building with a look, is invited in, with seemingly ordinary precaution, maybe. At a certain level, humanity and the government trust Superman, and they acknowledge and believe in his good intentions. The protesters or the government would have to be insane to invite Superman or to stand around insulting him if he was like Zod. So implicitly, even those who protest Superman extend a monochrome of trust to him. Superman is pensive because that delicate balance of trust and tolerance between himself and the government could all be upended in this hearing. The dialogue isn't guaranteed to go his way, and Superman doesn't want to be an enemy of the state, even if he could defect to another nation almost at will. But Superman hopes in humanity's better nature. And the scene makes me happy because Superman is going to speak. And perhaps my expectations are a little high, but I think they're going to be great lines. Another reason that this trailer is so brilliant is how it kept the Trinity silent, preserving their lines for later. Everything is said by other characters or or alter egos, we have yet to hear from Superman, Batman, or Wonder Woman. I'm going to skip ahead a little so that we can get all the lines at once. The world needs to know what happened, to know what he stands for. That kind of power is very dangerous. Let the record show that this committee holds him responsible. Now again, Snyder is being so clever by juxtaposing this with Metropolis, such that the natural assumption is that this hearing is about Metropolis. Maybe it is. 
However, consider the possibility that it's not. The timeline is a little fuzzy, but we're far enough out that Metropolis has built a statue in honor of Superman. Does that make sense if the world doesn't know what happened? If they don't know what Superman stands for? Would the world tolerate Superman constantly being out there all the time without those basic answers? And if this hearing was about Metropolis and they did find him responsible, would it then make sense for Metropolis to build a monument in his honor after such a finding? So I'm guessing that this hearing isn't about Metropolis, at least not directly. It may be a proxy for Metropolis, but I believe it's going to be about some other, lesser, likely foreign or international event. Being an international event on foreign soil is why the world needs to know what happened, and the involvement or confusion of American foreign policy interests is why they need to know what he stands for. Likely, Senator Finch is going to say that he has the ability to shape or represent American policy to the world, whether he intends to or not, and that that kind of power is very dangerous. So the subcommittee may be holding him responsible for causing an international incident and asking Superman to accept a government leash or to stop helping and intervening. And I imagine that Superman is going to decline. I'm speculating, but that's how I imagine things would go in the real world. Of course, truth is sometimes stranger than fiction. I'm only 20 seconds into the trailer, so I'm going to spare you the whole civics lesson and nitty gritty of how Senate subcommittees work. But the gist of it is that the entire legislature can't possibly review and expertly appraise every piece of pending and possible legislation with total and complete competency. Instead, they rely on committees, select members of Congress to become experts on the subject matter. And part of that includes holding investigatory hearings. Those committees then provide their findings and recommendations to the Senate as a whole. So when a subcommittee makes a finding, that doesn't necessarily mean anything except that it might influence a law to be made which addresses the finding. Maybe. It's not a court ruling. It's not a binding sentence. It's just several members of Congress arriving at an informed opinion hopefully. Subcommittee findings can transform the world for the better. You can have the heartfelt testimony from individuals like Mr. Fred Rogers pleading Congress to fund PBS for the sake of children's television, or Ben Affleck or Bill Gates testifying on behalf of the Democratic Republic of Congo. However, such hearings can also be completely out of step with America. You might recall the McCarthy hearings, meant to root out and crush communism, ending with the whole of America turning against McCarthy, with that infamous turning point, have you no sense of decency, sir? Or perhaps, closer to home, the subcommittee hearings on juvenile delinquency, which provided Wortham with a platform on which to present a parade of horribles, where the subcommittee ultimately didn't recommend legislation because the hearings drove the industry to self-regulation with the Comics Code Authority. So while they can be meaningful and significant, they can also be circuses, which pose the threat of legislation rather than any actual sanctions. All of which is to say, it wouldn't make much sense for this to be about Metropolis, but it also wouldn't be unrealistic because subcommittees don't always make sense. <laughs> but inviting an unchecked danger, for example, into America's seat of power doesn't really make much sense if the hearing is really about Superman being an arbitrary and capricious source of collateral damage. But if it is about an event occurring on foreign soil, then it would have no bearing on Superman's presence in the Capitol building. Okay, 
Well, back to the imagery, we have Bruce running through flaming cars in a blue outfit. More on those colors a little later, and we see Zod's heat vision slice through the building effortlessly. It was so gratifying to see the heat vision from another perspective, exactly as I imagined it, and described way back in episode 4 of this podcast, I knew without a doubt that that vision would sync up with Man of Steel and was pleased to see that it did. That careful attention to detail. We see Bruce on the phone while this happens, which is a brilliant expository step because it gives someone for him to talk to and to feed him information about the situation at large when he's just another bystander on the street otherwise. Perhaps it's someone in the building explaining Bruce's scream upon seeing the heat vision while others stand around dumbfounded. Bruce's reaction could be because of an immediate personal connection and it could also be a bit of a characterization to show how quick he is on the uptick in that he understands the gravity of what he's seeing before anyone else around around him does. I like to think that Bruce is on the line with somebody who's helping to evacuate the building and that that evacuation happened on Bruce's orders, much like the evac of the Daily Planet occurred on Perry's. Bruce being in Metropolis at this moment makes perfect sense. A little more on that in a bit. We get a mirrored shot of Superman exiting the building, and I know it makes for better continuity with Bruce's perspective, but for someone like me who has so much of this film etched onto their brain, a flipped shot is going to stick out a bit. Two quick points. First, consider the fact that no one outside knows whose heat vision brought down that building. Now, we know it was Zod. And visually, it isn't too hard to distinguish Zod's broad orange-yellow beams from Superman's concentrated narrow red beams. But who knows if the world at large has that kind of data to distinguish one from the other. Perhaps there are some who genuinely believe that Superman brought down that building attempting to fight Zod with heat vision. It's going to depend on how much the public knows or learns about the Black Zero event. And it's part of the reason that I don't believe that the subcommittee hearing is directly finding Superman responsible responsible for all the damage done to Metropolis, because if there was a large and legitimate segment of the population that thought Superman brought that building down, you don't wait years later to ask Superman to walk into a Capitol building to explain. So I think that most people know and believe that it was Zod, but whether Batman separates Superman from Zod is a separate question. Now the second point, and I think this gets lost on a lot of people because the scene is so quick, but Superman isn't in control of his flight when he exits the the building. He starts after Zod who retreated, but mid-flight he gets clipped by falling debris and he's tumbling out of control when he exits the building. And that's why he crashes into the parking deck below. It isn't because Superman enjoys blowing into buildings. It's because he didn't have control. And we've discussed that as recently as last episode, but it's critical to remember. At least in Man of Steel, at this level of experience, Superman's flight can be stopped, clipped, and knocked out of the air. Relatively easily. Just because Superman can fly doesn't mean that he can use that flight to force his will effortlessly on Debris or Zod. And this is completely consistent with the film and explains why Superman doesn't just exit the scout ship once it starts to crash and catch it. And it explains why Superman doesn't just take Zod away. It explains a dozen other little choices so long as you don't make the assumption that Superman flying means that he can just move anything anywhere effortlessly and at will. Okay, back to the trailer. Next, Bruce runs into the oncoming cloud of debris, even as everyone else runs away. Yes! That's my Batman. That's the heart of a hero. To overcome fear and not be defeated by the question, what can one man do? But instead answering it with everything that he can do. 
even if that's only comforting a little girl. That courage and instinct to help is the common ground that's going to bring Superman and Batman together in the end. The boy who saves the kids on the bus, who dives into the oil rig fire, who surrenders himself to humanity and sacrifices his innocence to save everyone. As different as Superman and Batman are, the heart of who they are is the same in this respect and why they have the potential for a deep and abiding respect for one another. I know many see anger in Bruce's eyes when he's looking up to the sky, and I understand that the juxtaposition of Senator Finch's finding makes it the easy assumption that Bruce blames Superman. However, I see it a little differently. I see Bruce afraid, but refusing to look away, accepting his role as witness and absorbing every iota of data he can for the coming reckoning. I don't see him blaming Superman per se. Instead, I see him recognizing the scope of what Kryptonians can do, and he's already planning to take them out, to take on that responsibility because he has no idea that Superman is going to stop this, and that germ of an idea would take root in his mind and continue to grow over time. As we pull out, we see the Wayne financial sign, and everything becomes elegant, logical, and reasonable. Of course Bruce was in town. If you've watched Man of Steel carefully, the ripples of first contact are always referred to and referenced in the subtlest of ways, but not in your face, because as we've discussed in the past, this was Clark's story from his perspective, not the world's story or the story of their reaction. Nonetheless, after Zod's ultimatum, we know that there is a panic because the FBI sees up an award-winning journalist in derogation of her civil liberties, and her editor is asking her to reveal her sources for the sake of the planet. Lois is outed on TV by blogger Woodburn, and if you watch the report carefully, you'll see on the news ticker that, quote, world markets have been frozen to prevent a financial collapse, end quote, which is a completely rational response to the panic that might occur after an alien descends from the heavens and threatens all of humanity, right? So with the markets frozen, it makes perfect sense that Bruce would go to Wayne Financial to address the market freeze. And depending on the duration of the freeze, it's a little unclear how long Superman and Lois were on the Black Zero, but more on that in our regular commentary episodes. And that may help to account for the relatively low casualties in the day of the collapse. Bruce's presence that day especially makes sense now that we've learned from the panel that Metropolis and Gotham are sister cities. That notion of sister cities has always resonated with me ever since Frank Miller said that Metropolis was New York City in the day and that Gotham was New York City at night. Metropolis was New York in Superman the movie, so my instinctive response was always to place Gotham in Jersey City or the like. I've never been so precious about this idea as to insist upon it, and I can easily roll with whatever the world builders want to say about Metropolis, Gotham, and their relative positions in the world, but there's a lot about them being sister cities that just rings true for me. Sister cities for the big brothers of superhero comics. I've said it before that Wally West is probably my favorite superhero next to and sometimes surpassing Superman, but one of the great introductions and reconciliations produced by Jeff Johns' run was to make Keystone and Central City sister cities, each with their own living, breathing attitudes and characters. I absolutely love it, and having the two play off each other is only going to help the world building of this cinematic universe. Or is that extended universe? I think I'm going to hold off on switching over until I see something more than the EW article referring to it as the extended universe. My brain keeps wanting to correct DCEU into DUCE or D-U-C-E. Um, where was I? I think I'm rambling. Uh, cities, right? Cities. Um, I just wanted to quickly address the criticism about immersive reality with fictional cities. The criticism 
system basically goes like this. How can DC pretend to pursue reality when all its action takes place in fake cities? Isn't everything taking place in New York more realistic? And the right answer is it depends, but it isn't nearly as clear cut as the critic claims. Reality and realism is a tool, not an end unto itself. Otherwise, we wouldn't have aliens, superpowers, or billionaire vigilantes to begin with. Realism is a tool to promote immersion and relatability, to help you identify with your world and foster the illusion that this could happen in the life that you live. And using New York City doesn't necessarily foster that goal. The overexposed New York City that you see on TV, where car chases can happen in the streets and apparently there's an elevated train, doesn't exist. I use New York and Jersey City as references instead of San Francisco because for years I walked past the Flatiron building and I didn't see the Daily Bugle or Spider-Man swing through. And when I looked out my office window at the skyline, I didn't see the Baxter Building or Avengers Tower. So setting Marvel in New York didn't enhance the immersion for me. Instead, it shattered the illusion. However, Metropolis is asking me to imagine a large city that I haven't been to. Well, I've traveled to a lot of large cities, but have I been to them all? Of course not. And what is one more large city that I haven't been to living only in my head? So fictional cities slot into that realistic, identifiable experience of a famous place you know of but have never been to, and which exists only in your imagination rather than your personal experience. Okay, I'm definitely digressing, let's get back to the trailer, but I should quickly mention that the building brought down by Zod was the one in which the keep calm and call Batman Easter egg was placed. It's funny how this film takes something like that and makes it logical to the canon of these films. So the trailer shifts in viewpoint from Superman to Batman, and so it's natural to believe that the decrepit building that we see is Wayne Manor, and the man in the unkept grass is perhaps Alfred. Given the collapsed roof, some have speculated that this is the exterior to the scene in the teaser where Batman is in a vandalized building with columns and rain pouring in. I don't know if this building has the height to accommodate that interior, but I'm not sure allowing vandals into the building above would be conducive to keeping a secret bat cave below. But I'm open to the possibility. And speaking of the bat cave, I love this establishing shot of the bat cave because we very quickly intuit the layout of the cave and the function of the individual sections, although I'm still at a loss for the purpose of the distinctly red room. The glass and the squared off layout gives this bat cave its own distinctive character. You know that it's a bat cave, but it's not one that you'll ever confuse with any other. And the glass helps address that age old question of bat guano being everywhere. <laughs> I do question how the entire thing came to be without a contractor being down in the cave, but I'm content not to be spoon-fed answers like those in the film. Let the story focus on the characters and the drama, and let the production design and world building tell the story of those things wordlessly. And that leaves them for fans like us who like to chew our food. Next, we see Bruce in the boardroom, a giant painting of his departed father Thomas Wayne, portrayed by Jeffrey Dean Morgan, behind him, receiving mail a copy of a Daily Planet article, Wayne Tower Devastated, with a caption, Dozens Killed. Some have commented on this number being far too small, but if trading was suspended for a set duration, then that might be reason for people to not come into work. And once the Black Zero descends upon Metropolis, there might have been an evacuation. So the death toll may consist of people outside the building or the few inside that stayed behind. 
Of course, what immediately catches the eye is the red block letters saying, you let your family die, and the mind leaps to the Joker taunting Batman. But does the Joker know Batman's secret identity then? That's a pretty big step that might bind the hands of future filmmakers wanting to use the Joker. Another plausible possibility is that this is targeted purely at Wayne by the distraught family of a fallen employee. Bruce could identify with that kind of anger only too well and might readily take on that guilt. Part of avenging his parents was always an aspect of misplaced survivor guilt. They were there on that day because he wanted to see that particular show. And so his employees were killed because he employed them in that building. It's not a correct response, but it's an emotionally truthful one that many of us can identify with. There are a number of other exotic and interesting candidates for who may have sent that accusation, from Lex Luthor trying to rile Wayne, to Jason Todd wanting to twist the knife to even more out there theories. However, I think this is going to be much more straightforward simply due to how packed this film already is. If it is the Joker, that wouldn't necessarily be inelegant given that he already has a presence in the cave and a hint without explicit mention or explanation can go a long way towards a feeling of richness and world building without feeling like heavy handed exposition. But we'll see. Moving on, we get Bruce's second angry stare followed by a reprisal of Alfred's lines. Then we get a shot of Bruce training by pulling a tractor tire by a rope. That's an exercise useful for building your lats and your grip strength, and it shows his mentality is towards bringing himself back to that physical peak. I will be so happy if we get a little training montage in Batman v Superman because that's what Batman's about, training to bring himself to his best and most effective version of himself. We see his back, and unlike some traditions, it does not appear to be covered in scars. At first, I missed that since the scars would suggest a lifetime of battle, and maybe they'll be added in post-production, but as I thought about it, a back without scars makes much more sense for the kind of Batman we want to see, as much as we want to see him mentally at his edge. I don't think we want to see a Batman physically broken so that he can't perform like he does in our imagination. And when you look at old fighters, yeah, many of them carry scars and broken noses and cauliflower ears. But many of the geniuses, the best of the best, don't have those because they're geniuses at combat. And for somebody to have lasted as long as Batman has, he can't just brute force that. He has to be a genius. And so his combat prowess may account for his lack of battle damage. All that said, Bruce does seem to have a round scar behind his right shoulder blade, perhaps from a bullet? This becomes more intriguing with the Robin costume later. But before that, we have a reprisal of Bruce looking at the suit and an interesting audio sting in the soundtrack, which might be a clue as to their approach to scoring Batman, maybe. Finally, we get our first look at Jeremy Irons in the character of Alfred Pennyworth, concluding his lines from the teaser trailer, and he looks great. We can leave open the possibility that Alfred isn't talking to Bruce or about Bruce, but he's definitely speaking to someone in the Batcave, and Superman is on the monitor in the bottom left of our screen. So I'm inclined to believe that Alfred is talking to Bruce about Bruce, but I'm keeping an open mind. And incidentally, if you were wondering, in this shot, Irons is about 65 and Affleck would be about 42. Alfred appears to be wearing a heavy apron, like one for welding, or perhaps it's a cast. I, 
I can't really tell. It's unclear. So next we get a shot of the GCPD finding a bat rang and a branded and chained criminal while Clark Kent says this bat vigilante is like a one man reign of terror. Let's tackle the imagery then the line. It seems that unless he's being framed, Batman likes to leave theatrical calling cards like his bat rang or branding his quarry. And I'm not sure how I feel about that yet. It's kind of weird. The timing is something that we have to work out too. So many people are coming at this assuming that Batman has been retired, but I don't recall that ever being officially stated anywhere. I mean, has Batman come out of retirement only to start branding low-level criminals? Or isn't it more likely that Batman never went away and this is simply a part of his routine? If he did go away, would this be an effective way to frame him if he's never done it before? And a little random note about leaving his perpetrator shirtless, I suppose that assists with the branding and it allows the police to approach with less fear of hidden weapons. But if you leave people chained up outdoors on autumn nights, there's a certain level of risk for exposure, but I guess the Batman plans for that too. Well, note that the criminal is conscious and largely intact, which is a slight sigh of relief for me because while I get what Snyder was going for with the compound fractures during the combat in Watchmen, it's not necessarily something that I want from Batman as a matter of course. Used judicially, maybe okay, but I don't want his go-to move to be maiming people. Although, making them scream seems par for the course as we see bats fly from a chimney, I think. Now, onto Clark's line, we get a glimpse into his perspective on Batman. I'm sure within the story, he doesn't mean to use Reign of Terror so specifically, but perhaps you're aware of its significance in the French Revolution. And here the filmmakers are showing subtle philosophical underpinnings to their characters. Robespierre famously said, quote, Terror is nothing but justice, prompt, severe, inflexible. It is thus an emanation of virtue, end quote. Food for thought, if this is how Batman thinks or is perceived. Our trailer shifts back to Superman, his deeds, and his supporting cast, Perry, Lois, Martha, and Lex. Perry says, you don't get to decide what the right thing is. Nobody cares about Clark Kent taking on the Batman. I love this line because it works on multiple levels, in and outside the film. And I wonder if that's going to be their approach to the secret identity, where everything Perry says can be interpreted under a lens where it seems like he knows Clark is Superman and under a lens where he doesn't, leaving it to the viewers to ultimately decide. We talked a ton about the secret identity in episode 9 of this podcast, so you can go back and listen to that. I'm just going to sidestep it for now because that might be where the film filmmakers are going to do when Batman v Superman. Ultimately, you have to pick your battles, and as much as we want a realistic explanation for how the secret identity works in a strictly realistic world, that might be an unwinnable battle for now or in this story. This short bit of dialogue shows that Clark doesn't operate 100% lockstep with Perry's wishes, so he has his own sense of justice and autonomy, even if Perry is trying to tell him otherwise. While many people have pointed out that Perry seems to be burying a story that would sell, I can't help but wonder if Perry's motives don't run parallel to the first film. Remember that Lois brought Perry a sensationalistic story about aliens among us, and while Perry couched it as a credibility issue initially, when Lois later pulls the story, Perry confides in her that he actually believes her, but is concerned about the public impact the story might have. So here's the thing. Perry used to be an investigative journalist himself. He's risen to the editor of the Daily Planet, and he He's led a colorful life in Metropolis, the sister city to Gotham. 
Is it perhaps possible that Perry has his own run-ins with the bat, been protected by, and who knows people protected by the bat? And the same reasons that Perry didn't want Lois to start a panic, protecting people. And the same reason Perry pretends that he doesn't know who Superman is, protecting people, is the same reason that Perry wants Clark to stop pursuing the Batman, so that the Batman can keep protecting people. Imagine if Perry is one of the good guys left. Imagine if this is Superman's version of Alfred telling Bruce Superman is not their enemy. Only Perry is telling Clark Batman is not their enemy. Complete and utter speculation, but wouldn't that be interesting? And I think it's also interesting that Perry is the first person to say Batman out loud. After Man of Steel, the seal has been broken and there's no need to be coy with the names. We cut to Superman and Lois at night with the Washington Monument in the background. And this suggests that after the Senate hearing, Superman and Lois need to talk. As we discussed in episode 20 of this podcast, some people seem to forget that Lois and Martha were in this. They forget the humanity and the relationships they bring to Superman's character. So by the same token, let's not forget that Captain Farris and General Swanwick are also set to return. Lois says, this means something. It's all some people have. It's all that gives them hope. So Lois is trying to encourage Superman, and that suggests to me that the Senate hearing concluded with a discouraging outcome, perhaps the expectation that Superman submit to their demands or hang up his cape. This is a vital question, somewhat left over from Man of Steel, because while we know it's in his nature to help, we also know it isn't in his nature to help publicly as Superman. That was brought on by necessity, by Zod. What exactly prevents Superman from disappearing back into anonymity, or perhaps going to another less troublesome nation, helping only as a guardian angel rather than a public figure? We like to take things in the Superman mythos for granted, assuming that, of course, once you've debuted in the costume, you'd continue to help people as a superhero. But is that really so obvious? Especially if the Senate asks you to submit yourself to regulation or retirement. Sometimes, Longtime fans are so committed to the canon, they fail to grasp common sense ideas that even children can accept without issue. Heroes going away due to mundane regulations is the very plausible premise behind Pixar's The Incredibles, and it's a completely reasonable question for the DCCU to attack. The why of Superman is also the why of the Justice League, and it means that he's going to have a meaningful character arc to resolve this question, even amidst all the action, conflict, and characters going on. When Superman resolves to be a public hero in reconciliation with the government, it in turn legitimizes that for other heroes, and it makes it possible for the League to be formed and sanctioned. Lois's words that it's all some people have and all that gives them hope has to be talking about truly dire straits, which can only be a job for Superman. However, for that hope to have developed, Superman must have earned that reputation for being the one to save you in those moments. So enough time has passed and Superman has lived up to that reputation to become a source for hope. People literally painting his symbol to be rescued. Which takes us to our next shot. We see Superman descending on flood victims, and I'm happy to say I accurately assessed what that rescuee was wearing on her shoulders back in episode 20, and it remains to be seen mechanically how Superman would save all those people. We might not see it, 
and the rescue might only be implied as part of a montage. We then see the Kent homestead, now fully repaired from the damage caused by Zod, under an incredibly starry sky, and Superman seeking counsel from Martha. Last episode, we talked about how the gift of flight meant that Clark could now do this, and Martha provides additional insight and perspective into Clark's quandary. Let's hit the rescues first, and then Martha's lines. First, we see Superman rescuing somebody from a fire. Three quick notes on that. First, note that Superman is rescuing someone from a fire, not stopping the fire itself in an instant, with ease, or without consequences. So there still seems to be some very real limitations on the scope of his powers. He isn't just whisking everyone to safety at super speed, freezing the building with his breath, or putting out the fire with a thunderclap, since those powers tend to be more cartoonish and more difficult to rationalize at this stage. Even with the insanely powerful Christopher Reeve Superman, remember that putting out a chemical fire was a highly involved process and not simply something that Superman could just do at will. And that was with a character who could freeze and transport a lake. If our intuitions and expectations about his powers align with our analysis, we'll be less prone to those why didn't he do this kind of criticisms based on baggage and assumptions rather than observations. Well, second, Superman is in a slow descent, something we saw him do at the Capitol building and both times he descends with Lois in Man of Steel. So Superman isn't limited to his explosive takeoffs and landings. And third, there is a lot of fire in this movie. <laughs> uh, we know that Batman is involved in a firefight at Gotham Gas, which results in many pyrotechnic explosions, and wouldn't it be interesting if Superman was saving a potential collateral damage victim of Batman's? <laughs> uh, the next shot is a wider angle on the Dia de Muertos scene, followed by a look at the rocket before Superman rescues the payload, which could be cosmonauts. I noticed that this seems to be the first dissolve between two shots, and everywhere else seems to be a cut or a fade in and out of black until we get to the scenes uh, that are underwater with the horseback riders and the wings. Superman lifting only the top portion of the rocket is closer in consistency to what we've talked about in the past on the show about him lifting things, and Superman appearing in time to rescue the payload leaves open the question of how he responds in time and in costume. If this is just part of a montage, we don't necessarily need to know all the logistics, but we could imagine Clark was there covering the launch, though it would seem a little weird to send a stringer to Russia to cover a routine launch, or if Lex told Superman of pending attacks to have him run ragged and test his limits we shall see eventually. Now, I don't know if it's intentional, but consider how Superman is tackling the elements. Uh, the flood equals water. Fire is fire. If there was an earthquake or a sinkhole in Mexico, that would be earth. And a rocket meant to pierce the sky or ascend to the heavens could be air. Again, that's all just speculation, especially since we don't know what's happening in Mexico and the rocket goes up in flames. But wouldn't that be a statement to see Superman taming or mitigating elemental disasters? Okay, next we have Martha saying, people hate what they don't understand. This isn't too radical a concept, and it echoes what Jonathan said in Manus. 
steal. People are afraid of what they don't understand. This shows that Jonathan and Martha were a team and they're on the same page. The question is whether people are hating on Superman because they don't understand him or his motives. And the demonstrators prove that it's a spectrum of answers. But I'm inclined to think that Superman and Martha are more concerned about the latter. After all, Congress wanted to know what does he stand for. The people already know that he saves lives and he is doing good. But despite that positive reputation and outcome, people despise him because they can't understand him. It's metatextual commentary on the character in the real world because Superman is routinely criticized as too good or unrelatable. And it isn't that they don't acknowledge Superman is good. They just don't understand or identify with somebody who is that good. Even if we know these people exist and if you're fortunate, you have those people in your life or you are that person yourself. Batman feeds into a slightly baser instinct of vengeance, which is more universally accessible since everyone has been wronged and wanted justice at one time or another. But not everybody wants to do good if it means they'll be wronged for it. Batman is about doing the most that you can do, something that everyone wishes for. But in many narratives, Superman has a paternalistic slant, and that means navigating the complexities of when not to do something, something that's harder to identify with until you're a parent or you have real power coupled with real responsibility over others. Then Martha says, be their hero, Clark. Be their angel, be their monument, be anything they need you to be, or be none of it. You don't owe this world a thing. You never did. So obviously, another line which could be perceived as self-interested, selfish, and contrary to tradition, but Martha isn't so ambivalent about Clark's choices. She's using a similar technique that Jonathan did, trusting Clark to make the right choices, but presenting the positive option as the subtlest suggestion of what he ought to do. In Man of Steel, Jonathan said, a choice of whether to stand proud in front of the human race or not. That could have been phrased, a choice of whether to hide in shame or not. But the phrasing implies the preferred course. Martha has no doubt that Clark will do the right thing. This is her Clark, the one that she's raised, not the persona Superman that she has to share with the public, but she wants him to do it unburdened by doubt or obligation. And again, the filmmakers are highlighting for us that being Superman is not the obvious or expected outcome. Being Superman is not a gimme or an assumption that we can just take for granted. It's very much a conscious choice. Even our most most heroic servicemen or public servants retire. They may hear the call of duty, but they move on after a tour, a serious fire, or a dramatic shootout. If someone performs valiantly in war, we thank them for their service, and then we let them pick their course in life. Their performance doesn't mean they're now obligated to participate in each and every war thereafter. Clark stepped up. He stopped Zod, and he saved the world. He helps when he can, but does that mean that he has to continue? Does one battle mean that he's committed to the never-ending battle? And part of this film is going to understand that commitment when he makes that choice. It's not something born out of debt or pathology, be it Spider-Man or Iron Man's guilt, be it Batman's need for vengeance or Captain America's nationalistic patriotic duty, but it's genuine charity and the heart of volunteerism. Now, even if Clark doesn't owe Earth a debt, what about Kal-El to Krypton? Well, I'm going to cut that for time, but good for thought, right? <laughs> uh, next, we get a shot of Tao Akamoto letting Senator Finch into a room with large wooden doors, an oriental rug, a burning fireplace, books piled on the mantel, and... 
Oh yeah, the head of a rhino over the fireplace. Akimoto is widely reported to be playing Mercy Graves, but that has yet to be confirmed, and personally I think that she's Luther's assistant or valet, but will probably have a different name. Not every character has to be pulled from the canon necessarily. Nonetheless, if I slip and call her Mercy, you'll know who I mean. Now obviously, Lex lives well, and one wonders if he comes from old money, explaining his trappings and his established brand, or if this was all recently acquired as well. I'm leaning towards old money providing an assist for a new money explosion, but we'll see. Uh, The lives of the youngest quote-unquote self-made billionaires are fascinating and perhaps give insight into Lex, but I'm going to skip on that for now too. Part of the reason I'm curious about that old money or new money dichotomy is because I want to know if that rhino came with the house or did Lex shoot it. Last year, a Texas hunter paid $350 thousand dollars to legally hunt an endangered black rhinoceros in Namibia, which had been marked for death for being too old to breed, but having aggressively killed three other equally endangered rhinos. So is Lex a safari thrill seeker with the kind of money to burn for experiences that involve mounting a rare animal as a trophy? And if so, does that inform us how he views and interacts with the last son of Krypton? The room appears to be the same one featured in the Entertainment Weekly shot, and Lex is wearing the same blue Uh, with black polka dots. And we see what appears to be old texts and a painting of Lucifer's rebellion, which tends to emphasize Luther's point to Senator Finch. I don't think Finch is in Lex's pocket per se, but instead this is an opportunity to make a pitch. The government wants to hold Superman accountable, and he declined to be leashed, so Lex is offering the power to force compliance. Lex comes across very much as somebody trying to persuade, so we're going to get insight into his mind here. We get the image of Superman bowed and Lex caressing his head without touching it, and that's so striking. Lex gives the slightest smirk and smile because this is like that rhino, a thing that he absolutely appreciates for what it is. Rare, powerful, beautiful but he appreciates it by killing and possessing it. Lex is wearing the same white shirt with the black pattern as when he says the God vs. Man line. So this is when the conflict with Batman is already established or precipitating. Is Lex sending Superman after Batman and then saying his lines? Or is Lex commenting on a conflict already in progress? Superman's face is filled with disgust. So is he down out of duress? Or is Superman kneeling due to weakness, perhaps kryptonite? Nope, behind Luther is a skylight, but also two red lights. And contrary to the comics, light from a red sun would not make everything red. Man of Steel recognized this with everything on Krypton lit as it was. So maybe those are red sun lamps? Probably not, but just wanted to float the idea. And if Lex had had the time to study Zod's body and how it metabolizes radiation, maybe Lex uncovered the red sun weakness along with kryptonite. We note too that Lex's hand is wrapped, so when and how did he receive that injury and treatment? There's a brief shot of Akimoto leading soldiers with a casket down a LexCorp hall, and the casket is labeled USAMRIID for United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, an actual real-world agency. And this reinforces the idea that Tao is Lex's assistant, that access to this was granted by Lex 
Alex's meeting with the senator, and that the U.S. military ultimately took custody of the alien technology coming from the BZE, the Black Zero event. We discussed the ramifications about who takes what tech way back in episode two of this podcast, but it seems like Superman deferred to the U.S. government and let them take everything, including Zod in a body bag. The ramifications of that are far-reaching, but largely already discussed, you can go back and listen to those episodes. The images start coming fast now and speak to a larger universe beyond just Batman and Superman. We get Robin's costume, clearly marked with the stylized R over the left breast. And in the wide shot, we see a rack of grapple guns and that Batman's suit appears to be biometrically locked with a handprint. The color of the suit is brown or bronze. Did the Joker put down a coat of primer before writing his graffiti? Or was the suit always this color? Or is the color the result of damage? The cape is in tatters and there's visual damage throughout the suit, including a number of holes. Are these bullet holes, bomb fragments, or something else? Remember Bruce's scar on his back? The suit isn't for a child, thankfully, and the texture is very reminiscent of Batman's own. The yellow graffiti seems unmistakably Joker's. Ha ha ha. Joke's on you, Batman. Placing this in the central location in his cave, where he must always see it whenever he accesses his suit or goes to the Batmobile, seems rather morbid, but it may act as the psychological fuel that keeps Batman going. The powerlessness to stop this event. The rage, which has turned Bruce cruel. The costume is holding an interesting segmented staff weapon, reinforcing the idea that Batman fights with martial arts rather than firearms. We get a glimpse of Diana in white and then Bruce talking to Alfred in the Red Room. We get a reprisal of Superman in the shaft, now walking past the soldiers, and then Batman in armor, unveiling and powering the bat signal. The bat signal tends to go against the idea of an urban legend, but we'll see. And this scene may be the analog to the where scene in The Dark Knight Returns, where Superman burns that question into the ground from space to pick a place to have their duel. The sign appears to be Batman calling Superman out. So now let's go back over the lines. 20 years in Gotham. How many good guys are left? How many stayed that way? 20 years appears to be Batman's tenure and the rough duration of his crusade. These lines may also be an oblique reference to fallen friends and allies, Gordon, Elliot, Dent, Todd, and so on. It also appears to be an acknowledgement that Superman may be good, but Batman's concern is about the future, not Superman's past or present deeds. And this is crystallized in the next line. He has the power to wipe out the entire human race, and we have to destroy him. Now, it's easy to assume this line is about Superman. Maybe it's about Lex. Uh, I'm inclined to believe it's about Superman. It's interesting that he says we. Does he mean we, the human race? Or we as in Bruce and Alfred? Also, these are the first lines from Bruce that we've heard. And based on past reports, we know that there is a Batman voice that's likely separate. But I'm pleased with this performance. Affleck can tend to pitch up his voice. But here he's kept his voice low and earnest. We then get a shot of a... A free diver following down a rope and a chain to some object where swimming at relatively shallow depths and in warm waters and that might suggest that the object has some buoyancy. Is it a body? Is it a rock? What am I looking at? I have no idea. With the water, people obviously want to make the connection to Aquaman. Maybe. 
We'll find out. But next we see horseback riders. Now, this was probably shot in New Mexico, and one of the riders appears to have something on his back, uh, maybe a bow or a rifle. They appear to be men wearing bulky outfits, which include some sort of headgear. And the sepia tones in the grating make me want to link this scene to the ones with the super shock troopers. Only we see that they are kitted out with modern vehicles. But they're obviously fighting and firing at someone. So here's my prediction. These horseback riders are members of Batman's resistance. A bit more on this later, but next we have the death of the Waynes. In a period accurate scene, a left-handed shooter, Joe Chill perhaps, fires his gun. Jeffrey Dean Morgan's role of Thomas Wayne is confirmed with the Aragon Marquis behind him, and young Bruce screams in anguish. Again, that guilt as Batman wanted to see the 1940 film The Mark of Zero. The Marquis also lists the 1981 film Excalibur, putting the birth of Batman one year after Superman. Clark arriving on Earth in 1980, and this horrible crime giving rise to the Batman one year later. Perhaps a subtle homage to Batman's debut in 1939, one year after Superman started the genre in 1938. This scene was shot in IMAX, so there's a judicious use of slow motion, adding that tool back into Snyder's toolbox. We cut to two coffins being brought to a Wayne mausoleum, and as we talked about in episode 23, the prop department often populates the scene with text not meant to be caught on camera, and has fun with that text. So, given the headstone marked Richard Grayson from spy photos appearing in the scene, the text is clearly not meant to be visible. So, unless they intended for Dick to predecease the Waynes, or they don't mind that minor continuity error, personally, I think it's just a bit of fun on the prop department's part. We don't know how many Robins there were, and which one might be implicitly thought to be dead, but the spy photo of the tombstone isn't dispositive. We then get a shot of the Batwing, which seems to have been branded the Bat jet in licensing literature flying over a fiery landscape. Again, so much fire in this film. A city skyline can be seen in the distance with a body of water between them, so very likely we're looking at one of the sister cities from the shore of the other, just a ferry ride away. And although fire is everywhere, there does seem to be a central crater and conflagration. We then cut to Lois at the rally. We're back at Washington behind the police barricade with Lois, who is among the demonstrators, and every Everyone has ducked down and is getting up. So what happened? I don't know why, but I'm excited that we might get to see Lois's press badge in detail. And this shot lets us know that while the trailer has a certain storytelling flow to it, clearly some of the sequences are out of order. And we shouldn't be so quick to presume that any one scene takes place in the same order in the film as they do in the trailer. So for a rough sequence of events, Superman does something. Um, I've proposed something of international import, which triggers the Senate committee hearing. And somehow it concludes with an inciting incident at Washington, which has Superman conversing with Lois later at night. Maybe. I mean, what if Superman arrived with a sonic boom, causing people to duck? People are ducking, but they're not clearly screaming or scattering. Lois is astonished. So I tend to think that this occurs after the hearing and not before. Maybe Superman is so mad leaving the hearing that he takes off with an angry sonic boom. Or maybe they try to arrest or stop him or something somebody attacks him 
him, leading to the crowd cowering. There is more to this scene, and it will be interesting to find out exactly what. Next is Bruce in black in front of the MSU's Eli and Edith Broad Art Museum. Note that neither Bruce nor Diana are wearing a tux or the sequined evening gown that we saw in the Entertainment Weekly exclusive pictures. A brief note on costuming and colors and the brilliance of these filmmakers. So in the trailer, Diana appears in red and in white. In paparazzi set photos, we've also seen her in a blue dress. And in Entertainment Weekly, we saw her in a dress of gold metallic sequins. So red, white, blue, and metal. Likewise, Bruce is seen in a blue outfit with colors that summon to mind his old blue costume. So the layers of references and respect for the source material in this film is awesome. All these costume changes also mean that barring montage, flashbacks, or deleted scenes, each outfit also suggests another scene with Diana Prince. So she probably appears at least four separate times. And this means that Diana is well acquainted with the quote-unquote man's world. In this scene, she appears to be getting into the driver's seat of a sports car, so she can drive. And which is, pardon the pun, wonderful. There are times when the fish out of water version of Wonder Woman is right for the story, where she's unaccustomed to ice cream or modern culture. But a sophisticated Wonder Woman is what this film and the world needs today. Just like Superman is called to tackle challenging moral dilemmas, we need a savvy Wonder Woman to negotiate the complexities of modern diplomacy, and not one that gets confused by man's world. Of course, that sophistication and intelligence doesn't mean she can't kick ass, which is exactly what we see next. Wonder Woman winding up and the cockpit of the Batjet behind her. The cockpit shares a lot of lines with the Batmobile, so it might be that, but since the intake ports are missing from the sides, this doesn't seem to be the Batmobile. Also, they took care to show the tracks in the ground that sent the cockpit there. So Wonder Woman locks her infamous bracelets together, and waves of blinding light and energy come out. You have to frame by frame it to see it, but definitely something is going on when she crashes her bracelets together. Now, whether that's the same effect as the dome of energy we cut to is a little less clear. That explosion seems to have more color to it and wild streams of lightning and fire inside, not quite as pure as the energy from the bracelet collision. That domed explosion is massive. We're talking about a dome that's larger than skyscrapers, and that's the scale we're talking about, whether this is magic, science, or whatever. So the stakes are definitely real. Now, cut to Desert Batman with barbed wire, desaturated sepia, a bleak sky, and rubble. You get the feeling that the cities have been bombed out, and this is the apocalypse. Desert Batman has his own look and gear, and that means more toys and licensing. But in story, I think this is a vision of a future where Superman reigns and Batman leads a rebellion. The horseback riders harken back to the Dark Knight Returns, when Batman takes the city on horseback and essentially enforces martial law. And here we have a future where Superman Superman rules. Batman is leading a literal underground resistance, which is why he emerges from a bunker and why Superman descends into one where his soldiers bow at his presence. The shock troopers are appropriately faceless, and Batman is swarmed and on his knees, managing to kill one. I don't think this takes place within the main storyline, but instead is a vision. The question is, whose? Now, while Batman is prone to paranoia, I don't really consider him to have these kinds of flights of fantasy or 
imagination. I think the best person to have this vision would be Wonder Woman, whether she has it directly or by an oracle of legend. Because magic solves any of the issues of portent, prediction, predestination, and the like. And it serves as a concise and powerful motivation to explain Wonder Woman's involvement at this time, in this place, and with these parties when she is not yet known to the world at large. A vision of the world ending because these two fight would completely justify her motivations, showing and not telling. And it would also give us more Batman v Superman action in an Elseworlds tradition. I'm predicting a pretty weird trippy detour, but one that Elseworlds fans like myself are going to eat up with a spoon. Sort of the way that people are dying to know Krypton's story from Man of Steel, I can easily imagine people wanting to know more about this alternate world where Batman and Superman each have their legions. And again, this is going to be a reminder not to take Superman for granted. It's what stories like What's So Funny About Truth, Justice, and the American Way are about, showing you what Superman could be like if he didn't honor those values, so that you don't take him for granted. Okay, moving on, we get a quick shot of the Batmobile peeling out at Gotham Gas as an oil tanker explodes, and imagine if that sets off the fire, which requires Superman to save someone. Probably not, but it's a thought. And from one pyrotechnic to another, this time an interior shot, we get a glimpse of Batman as a ferocious whirlwind of motion, using his grapple gun as a melee weapon to disarm someone trying to raise a rifle. And then we get a reprisal of the Batmobile driving through an explosion, so much fire, and then a quick glimpse of Superman looking over his shoulder. And that visual is juxtaposed with Alfred's lines, you're going to go to war. He is not our enemy. And that image was in there to make the subject of his sentence clear. Alfred is saying that Superman isn't their enemy. And we get to see Alfred, who is trembling with every syllable, emphatic. Batman's sole remaining confidant can see the forest for the trees and recognizes Superman for what he is. But Batman's cynicism and personal experience, watching Wayne Tower fall before his eyes during the BZE, has blinded him. Well, next we get a LexCorp exterior shot, and the cop wants Lex to show down, but he just blows right past, and Lex riding a motorcycle in the rain reinforces that adventurous and anti-authoritarian spirit, which is what we need, because a conservative and a cautious Lex, content with the comforts of his wealth, would probably never even get mixed up with the capes. But a daring one that delights in danger and turmoil is the perfect puppet master and adds a little energy and levity to the film. We see a deflated basketball, uh, living and wounded guards, and way too many bullet casings, a mix of handgun and rifle, and some of the firearms on the ground. And incidentally, no cop is going to let a civilian walk onto a crime scene with unsecured weapons, but perhaps that's a testament to how how even the cops can't tell Lex what to do. I think the general speculation is that with all the guards still living, Batman has assaulted and invaded LexCorp. If true, leaving this large a footprint either means he's not an urban legend or he's not anymore, which might make for an easier transition into the Justice League hereafter. Well, next is Lex and his green rock. And if I were in denial, I would say that the rock is not clearly glowing green, but only lit green. But I think between Entertainment Weekly, past 
past rumors and more, we're at the point where it's clear that kryptonite is here. A world without kryptonite is definitely something different, but a world with kryptonite is definitely tradition and something easily intuited by the audience as an explanation for how this fight can work. And as long as it's used sparingly and judiciously, I'm okay with it. The biggest potential plus for kryptonite is the possibility of getting that scene where Superman entrusts kryptonite to Batman with all the meaning that that entails. Now, I don't know if you can get there in one film, but it opens the door to that eventual possibility. Lex's expression and outstretched hands is similar to what he does when Superman was kneeling before him, and it perhaps suggests a more complicated set of emotions about Superman and Kryptonians than pure hate or enmity. Lex seems to be looking at the kryptonite with affection or longing because of what it means to him or what it can bring him. He isn't arching his fingers or twirling his mustache. It seems that this Lex has a genuine awe of the alien. Well, cut to our first glimpse of the marquee fight. Armored Batman stomps Superman through a skylight, and we know from the Comic-Con close-ups that those boots have spikes on the bottom. <laughs> It's a big, epic, comic book-styled hit, which just shows the kind of punishment that Superman can take. Now that we're inside the building, perhaps Superman throws Batman off and they climb to their feet and we get that collision that we saw in the IMAX exclusive footage. If you look closely at Batman's chest plate, you can see the imprints of Superman's hands, meaning that even if he's fighting a tactical and martial genius who has planned for this fight and is wearing a suit laced with Superman's explicit weakness, that this Superman can still mess up Batman's armor. And as Snyder said at the panel, Batman is going to be pummeled like a pinata. Both of these heroes are going to give it their all in an epic spectacle. Now Batman's wearing a thick bandolier not seen at Comic-Con, so perhaps he's carrying some more tricks or toys that we have yet to see. At Comic-Con, we also learned that the armor is primarily protective and not strength enhancing. And this is an important and welcome detail because it helps justify Batman without the armor in the future. If the sole purpose and function of the suit is to survive Superman and they become allies, then it makes sense that Batman would stop wearing it. If the suit gave Batman superpowers, then it's harder to explain why Batman retires the suit. The filmmakers are thinking all this stuff through, and that's why I love this take on DC lore. Now cut to Wonder Woman taking a hit. Well, she shakes it off and gives that perfect look that says, now you've done it. You're in trouble now. And in the recently released IMAX theatrical cut, we get a little bit more of Wonder Woman getting pushed back and her shield seems to be cooling off from glowing with heat. Now maybe it's just catching the light of all the flames around them, but again, so much fire. Speaking of which, we see Superman flying through flaming rubble. His eyes light up red, and for the first time we see him use heat vision in conjunction with flight. Now it'll be interesting to see if they've kept it where Superman has to recover each time he uses it, or if he's learned to use it without that recovery period. The shot cuts to Batman dodging in an epic homage to the cover of The Dark Knight Returns. Seriously, I can't imagine how many hidden Easter eggs like that are going to be in this film or are yet to be discovered in Man of Steel. We get to see Batman use his grapple gun and completely embody the comic character in that instant. Now, while the cut intends to make it look like Superman fired on Batman, there are some possible clues that allow for an alternative. First, assuming that the armor was their climactic battle, when would this happen? Is this a rematch after 
after the armor where Batman tries to fight Superman without it, or if this takes place before the armor battle, then why is all the wreckage and rubble reminiscent of what surrounds Wonder Woman? And that's the second point. All that wreckage and rubble tends to imply that this is the third act threat. Why would a battle between just Batman and Superman alone result in all that flaming wreckage? And third and finally, as we discussed, Superman's heat vision always appears red and focused, but the beam dodged was orange and broad, like the heat vision that Bruce witnessed when his tower went down, burned into his memory, etching this fear, mistrust, and hatred into himself. And tackling whatever generates these beams is like conquering that fear and avenging that evil. On the edges of the broad beam are wispy ropes of energy that sort of resemble that domed explosion, so might the two be tied together. Who or what is shooting at Batman, causing these persistent ambient sparks and fires everywhere? Metaphorically, the Dark Knight, the Man of Steel, and the Amazonian Warrior may be slaying a fire-breathing dragon together. Now, as long as I'm mentioning the Trinity, I might as well just quickly mention this as the father of all superheroes. It's natural that all superheroes may have an element or aspect of Superman in them. But it's interesting that the three pillars of Superman's values, truth, justice, and the American way are mirrored in the modern trinity, and that's why they're the foundational bedrock of the DC universe. Wonder Woman is the spirit of truth. Batman is driven by the need for justice, and Superman is perhaps the only hero who can truly reflect the American way not just as a cartoonish optimistic ideal, but with all the complexity, nuance, confusion, and questions of being the world's last superpower. Now I'm rambling, let's get back to it. We have Luther again in that same outfit that we saw him wearing when he had Superman kneeling before him. And he says, black and blue, God versus man, day versus night. It's over the top, but I love it. It shows how much insight Lex has into these heroes, that he's one step ahead of everybody and he told grasps the situation and he just completely revels in it. You can see the madness but also the light in his eyes and the amusement on his face. This is an exterior shot and it isn't raining but you can see lightning off in the distance. So I'm guessing these lines occur before Superman and Batman meet up in the rain and Lex is describing something to be not which already is. I'm not sure how I feel if Lex is the one sicking Superman on Batman but that might be a good origin for their specific animosity towards one another. In other words, if Lex doesn't do something that specifically victimizes Superman, he may as well just be a Batman or Justice League villain. But here, Lex is tinkering with dead Kryptonians, and he's brought Kryptonite into the world. And if he's responsible for setting Superman loose on the one who will become his most trusted colleague, those would all explain why he's a Superman-specific villain. Three images quickly flash by. We get Superman and Lois at night again, intimately close together, and Hopefully, this is a separate scene and not just an extension of the Washington Monument scene so that Lois gets more to do. It implies that their relationship has continued to develop, hopefully, and we get a scene of Superman floating over a wrecked building, winding up to do his trademark two-fisted charging move. This is the only effect shot that bothered me a little bit. Maybe that's Cavill's actual head, but the way that it screws up in anger just triggers a little bit of an uncanny valley for me. I think it's a digital double and kind of hope that it is because because that means that they can fix it. It's a split second though, and it's out of context. And the next shot of Batman completely vaporizing the window as he crashes through it. Absolutely, the comic books brought to life. I just love it. Then we have Lex saying, the red capes are coming. The red capes are coming. And this is back with Senator Finch.
Lynch, and Lex is sarcastically referencing the cry of the Redcoats are coming during the American Revolutionary War. We talked about the British Redcoats back in episode 16 when talking about Wonder Woman's costume and Aquaman. You can check that out. But again, what I'm getting from Lex is that he sees the big picture. He's brilliant and he's mad, but he sees the beginning of the DC universe in a way that nobody else does. And he's sarcastically acting as the herald for the superhero revolution to come. Warner Brothers marketed this perfectly by first providing us with that black and white, graven and shaven, bald-headed Luther in Entertainment Weekly, then showing us this flamboyant, playful, and reckless Lex. If and when this Lex is laid low, that's when we'll see the transformation into that other Lex. But for now, it makes perfect sense for him to treat these capes like toys because they're a novelty and because he thinks he's the only one that understands. Part of his confidence in dealing with Superman is the idea that he could snuff him out, but he has games that he wants to play first. And if Luther proves to be a greater threat to humanity than Superman, that would help resolve some of the angst that the planet has over a being from another planet who's only trying to help, when one of their own can bring about destruction just as easily as that alien that they all feared. Now, finally, we close with Superman walking in slow motion towards the Batmobile, seemingly in flames. We're still at Gotham City Gas, and Superman effortlessly tears the doors off the Batmobile, and Batman stands to face him. Superman demonstrating strength, Batman demonstrating fearlessness. The choir reminds us how epic this is, and we're done. I think this feels like a first meeting. That's probably just a fraction of all my thoughts, but that's all that time allows. Of course, we're going to learn more over the coming months, but I am hyped, I'm excited, and I'm so happy to see that this film seems like it's going to live up to the legacy of the things that I love about Man of Steel and Zack Snyder's approach. I suspect that this is going to be an extremely densely layered film, which can be enjoyed easily on a superficial level, but also with a lot of exposition, themes, references, and more laying just below the surface for fans like us who love to chew our food. I'll probably do a Suicide Squad and Mailbag episode next, and then we'll continue with our Man of Steel commentary episodes. I'm going to have to cut it off here. I think I've, I've been recording way longer than I meant to, but thanks so much for your patience. I really appreciate you guys listening, uh, keeping your minds open and positive and optimistic about the future of the DC Cinematic Universe. I'm Dr. Awkward, your DCCU apologist, signing off. Answer, son.